right, guys. Well, let me begin with a word of prayer before we dive into our time. Um, and uh, let me just introduce myself. If you've never met me before, my name is Greg Brooks, and I'm, I have the privilege of being able to speak to you guys tonight. And uh, I just want to say welcome and Merry Christmas. All right, a few guys. Well, hey, let me pray, and then uh, we'll take off some time in the Word. Well, God, thank you so much uh, that you are Emmanuel, meaning God with us, that you um, have chosen to love us and care for us and be with us. And I know, God, even you're here tonight. I'm so thankful for this city who allows us to use this building and gather together to be able to worship and sing songs and thankful, God, for the talents you've given to friends. Thankful for all the friends and family who are here together and that we got to travel to be with one another. And God, we thank you for your son who was 2,000 years ago born in a manger, who was not just a boy, not just a babe, but God among men. And we're so thankful. And as we worship you, as we talk about you, as we spend time together as family, I pray that all of this will glorify you, make much of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All right, kiddos. Kiddos in the room, are you excited about Christmas? Yeah. All right. Parents, are you excited about Christmas? Yeah. yeah, right? Just a little bit in debt, but we're still excited. Uh, it's good. You know, what's fun about Christmas, and kids, are any of you guys excited about Christmas presents at all? Yeah. A little bit? Okay, maybe a little bit. It's super exciting seeing sometimes the Christmas presents under the tree. Uh, when I was little, I did something you should never do. And in the middle of the night, on Christmas Eve, I opened a present. You shouldn't do that. Um, I never did it again because my mom beat me, okay? Your mom will beat you, so don't do it. But here's the thing. Parents, you guys, you see the excitement in your kids, right? They're incredibly excited about Christmas presents. What's in there? It's this mystery, this thing. And they've got things that they were excited about. Maybe they gave you lists. They told you what they wanted. But they're so excited. Do you remember what it was like to be that way? where you were really excited and you were excited about getting gifts, you were just looking forward to these things, right? And every year we got really excited about getting a gift. But here's the thing, parents, can you remember all the gifts that you were excited about? No, you don't. You don't even remember them, but they were the world to you, right? And if you're a parent and you've already gone through a Christmas before, you've gone through the tragedy of giving your kid a gift, him opening it and moving on to play with a box, right? We move on. Well, that is kind of the way that life is in a lot of ways. We look forward to things. We set goals, things we want to achieve, things we want to be about. And sometimes we actually get them. We get the gift that we want. We achieve the goal that we want. But then what? Then what? Well, I want to show you a real quick video because there's a guy, and I don't care how you feel about him, but he, he gets it. There's a guy named Tom Brady. Back in 2005, very successful man. And uh, don't get too hyped, all right? All right, you're going to alienate yourself in a few minutes, okay? And uh, Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes, and I think it's really important that we begin our time with what Tom says in this video. Watch this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew. I mean, it's, I 
think that's part of me ex- trying to go out and experience other things. But there's a I know I love playing football and I love being the quarterback for this team. And but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find and different ways of expression, being around. I know what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends and positive relationships with with great people. And I think I get more out of that than anything. A man who I think that all of us would say was a successful man, right? How many quarterbacks have tried to win the Super Bowl and never done it? A great quarterbacks. And by the time he was 27 years old in 2005, he had won three. A few years later, he's going to marry Giselle, who is the number one model in the world. She had more money than he does. And now, 2021, how many rings does Tom Brady have? He's got seven. Yeah, he's got seven rings. I want to know, like, for Tom Brady... Having the three was not enough. He was looking for the next thing. It just wasn't there. Couldn't find it. So the question is, is Tom Brady now satisfied? He's got seven rings. Is he now satisfied? Well, there's an interview. I'm not going to show it to you, but between him and and Gronkowski, who's a tight end who's been playing with him for about 10 years, and they do this little interview together. They did it recently, and it's a little best friends test because they're supposedly their best friends, right? And so they're sitting across from each other down in Tampa, and um, they're getting questions thrown at them about the other person, and they have to write down on their own little dry erase board what they think the answer is for that person. So the question that got asked was, which one of Tom Brady's seven rings is his favorite? And Gronk just starts laughing, because he's like, I already know what it is. And Tom's like, yeah, you do. You know what it is. So they both write down their answer. And then when they turn their dry erase board around, what it says was, the next one. After all this time, And now seven rings, more success. Tom is still saying the same thing. It sounds kind of cool, like, man, never satisfied. Keep grinding, keep going, keep getting after it. But really what he's saying is, I'm not satisfied. I have not found what I'm looking for. Is this really it? Listen, all the stories that we're told around this time, all the ad campaigns are trying to do the exact same thing that was done to Tom. Hey, if you just have this car, you're going to be satisfied. If you can just go on this beach vacation, it's going to be good. Hey, if, if 2022 can just be better than 2021, it'll be great, right? If I could just get married this year, if or I could just be married to somebody else this year, or if I could achieve this goal or get this job or pay off my mortgage or whatever the case may be, it continues to sell us these things. But here's the thing. When we get those things, whether the Christmas presents or all the things I just listed, it's not just Tom. It's you and me. It satisfies for a moment. But then satisfaction goes away and leaves us with this just deep feeling that it's not enough. Have you found that to be true? That every single time you get what you think you want, it does not provide what you need. Now, you know what we don't need this Christmas and New Year's? is another plan from this world saying, hey, if you do this, you'll get what you want. We don't need that. All right? Those are fairy tales. All right? That's frozen. That's... You know, that's tangled. It's a a man on a white horse. You're chasing something that's not there. And you think it's going to save you. But the reality is it doesn't. And that's why tonight I want to talk to you about Jesus. You go, well, it's Christmas, Greg. Of course you're going to talk about Jesus. But I'll tell you this. If anybody gives me any chance to say whatever I want to say on a stage to this many people, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Now, here's the thing. You're going, oh, some of you want to check out right here. And I get it. You want to check out. You're like, listen, isn't this Jesus thing just another fairy tale? little boy in a manger and a star and a bunch of sheep and goats all around, drummer boy. Like, isn't just this another failed plan? Because some of you guys, maybe you've tested out Christianity or 
You've been a part of this or you've seen Christians, and look, let me be honest, Christians do not help themselves sometimes, right? Sometimes they look just like everybody else. You're like, why do I want that? I've already got that stuff. Or maybe we've gone through a lot of pain and you've gone through hurt. Maybe this last year you lost somebody or you've had cancer or you lost a job, you had to move, things didn't go well. And you prayed. And you prayed to God. You, you even prayed to Jesus. And he didn't show up the way that you hoped he would. I want to tell you, listen, I in no way want to run over your feelings. I don't want to dismiss your experience or anything like that, okay? I'm not a car salesman. I'm not just a storyteller. I'm not a life coach. I want you to consider me just an ambassador tonight, an ambassador of Christ. And I want to talk to you about the story of Christmas. Or better put, I want to talk to you about the plan of God in the history of Christmas, Okay, the plan of God, and I want you to entertain this, the plan of God, I want to tell you about three different points about it. The plan of God's plan is personal, God's plan is promised, and God's plan is possible. Okay, God's plan is personal. How is God's plan personal? Let me read you a, a piece of scripture from Luke. It's Luke chapter 1, 26 to 27. You might have heard it. It's in the middle of the Christmas story. It says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, the guy who wrote this, his name is Luke, and Luke was a physician, but he was also a historian. So like a good historian, he opens up in the first two sentences, and he gives you eight details about the situation, okay? He talks about the name of the angel, what region they're going to, what month this was in, and the name of the city. He tells you the name of the groom. He tells you what family the groom comes from, and he tells you that the virgin's name is Mary. He gives you eight details. That's what a historian does. He wants to tell you the facts. Why is this, uh, why is this important to God's plan being personal? Because God's, God's plan for you is not frozen or tangled. It's not some made-up fictional story. It's rooted in reality. Guys, the Christmas story is the history of humanity. It's our history. It's human history. Now, the question really is, though, how good of a historian is Luke, really? Like, you're saying it's a Bible guy, so of course, Greg, you're a pastor. You're going to say he's a great historian. Well, there's actually a guy, one of the, arguably one of the greatest historians or archaeologists of all times, a, name, uh, a guy by the name of Sir William Ramsey, okay? And Sir William Ramsey, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, he also doubted that Luke was a good historian. He didn't believe it. In fact, he was so convinced that he spent time and year, or years and money to go and prove that Luke should not be trusted, particularly the book of Acts, which is the second half of this book, Luke. So he toured throughout Greece. He went all throughout uh, Asia Minor. And in all these places in the late 1800s and early, early 1900s, in an attempt to refute Luke's historical records. Before his travels, he believed that Luke couldn't have made a very accurate, uh, been very accurate because of the lack of archaeological evidence to support Luke's claims. But after years of touring and searching and discovering, Ramsey found it to be exactly the opposite of what he realized. He puts it like this. He said, Luke is actually a historian of the first rank. Not merely, as, uh, merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, Ramsey says, 
This author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. This is a non-believer saying this. But in his discovery, when he began to see that this was actual history, it became personal for Ramsey. And Ramsey was so impressed that he eventually became a Christian, a man who doubted. This is rooted in reality. This is not just some fairy tale. And a group of people getting around singing songs, Oh Holy Night. It was a real night. And so that's why the next couple of verses that Luke says are extremely important. Let me read them to you. It says this. And he came to her, that's Mary, the angel Gabriel, <clears throat> and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be, right? Of course, an angel showed up in your room, I'd freak out a little bit, okay? I'm a grown man, I still scream. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So what's going on here? Okay, what do we know about uh, Mary is that she's probably a teenage girl. Uh, she's engaged. As far, she lives in a rough, rough town, okay? A dangerous town. And uh, she's engaged to a guy who's from the line of David, as far as her rank goes, we don't really know much about her, hardly anything. Being a woman and a teenager and marrying a carpenter who was poor, probably not a lot of rank, all right? So that leads us to the next question. Why in the world would God send an angel to a teenage girl in a nobody town in a nobody region? Why would he do that? Well, here's the thing. I think there's a false act, like, assumption that in Bible times, or in the Bible, um, the angels are just walking around everywhere, okay? They're just all over the place, and they're just delivering messages left and right, okay? And she just happened to be one of them. No, it's extremely rare, even in the Bible, for an angel to show up and deliver news. And every time it happens, it shows up at a time where God is on the move, and he's about to do something new. And so the angel says something to her that is extremely important for us to understand that he comes for teenage girls he comes from contractors. He comes from people just like you and just like me. What does the angel say? He says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. That word favored right there is really important because it comes from the Greek word charis. Charis is where we get the word grace, okay? And so he comes to her, and gra grace basically is just getting what you do not deserve. And so what he says is, Hey, greetings, O favorite one, graced one. You're about to get something that you do not deserve. This little girl, she doesn't have God coming to her because she's morally more superior than all of us. She doesn't have God coming to her because she's the most beautiful girl in all the land. It's not because she's a princess, not because she has 40 million followers on Instagram. God is coming to her because he's choosing to extend her something that she doesn't deserve. And you know what it is? He says it right there at the end of it. The Lord is with you. The thing that she does not deserve and none of us deserve is God's presence with us. That's what he's extending to Mary. And she's so confused, she, he's got to tell her a second time, hey, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor, you found grace with God. This is the first, and I want you to understand the first and most important thing I want to tell you tonight, that God's plan is personal. It's personal. It's a grace that he wants to extend to you. Listen, are you a teenage girl? God wants to be with you. Are you a carpenter? Are you a contractor in the room? God is saying he wants to be with you like he was with Joseph. God's plan is personal. It's rooted in history. It's not a make-believe story. And you've got to understand 
uh, as a fellow ambassador of Christ with the angel Gabriel, I want you to know that God's plan is to extend you something that you do not deserve, and it's namely himself, and that's important. So the first is God's plan is personal. Second, God's plan is promised, okay? Now, when I say promise, God's plan is promised, I think if you really think about it, we all pause and I ask you about it. I asked you, said, hey, have you ever had a broken promise in your life? Has anyone ever broke their promises to you? You'd probably say yes. In fact, some of you would be like, listen, I don't even want to hear about promises. God's promises? I don't want to hear about that. And I want to tell you I understand. In this box right here, this wine box, um, I don't even know how I got it, but um, in this wine box right here, it's full of letters. It's so many letters that it's starting to kind of burst at the seams up here at the top. You can kind of see that. Um, I've had this since I was a kid. And the letters that are in this box are letters that are from my dad. Um, you see, growing up when I was a kid, in second grade, a little girl told my brother on the playground that our dad was in prison. We had no idea. We'd just been writing our letters to this man for a while, and I had no idea. I didn't know that uh, New Mexico Correctional Facility meant prison. And so she, he gets on the bus with me, and he goes, hey, this girl just said our dad was in prison. I said, she doesn't know what she's talking about. So we go home, uh, and we get to her house, and get to my grandma's house, and my aunt, uh, great aunt is sitting in the dining room. And I came in and said, hey, some girl told... Aaron, that our dad's in prison. She goes, yeah, you didn't know that? Boom, eight years old. And it crushed me. So I got to visit my dad. And we kept writing letters. And this box is filled with them. And it's filled with promises. Lots of promises of what's going to happen once he got out of prison. The time that we get to spend together. And he was going to get out my freshman year of high school. So I had to wait. He was in there for nine years. Gets out my freshman year of high school. And I've got all these expectations of the way it's going to be. And I put all my hope and all my trust and this man, and so I show up to, uh, I, I move back to the town that he is in. He gets out of prison, and it's great for a little while. We play ball. We do the things that dads do with their boys, and it was really, really cool. But over time, I began to see that my dad was more concerned and more in love with his friends and drugs and alcohol than he was with me. So for my, my freshman year, it crushed me. It destroyed me because I began to realize he's not living for me. And the promises slowly begin to fade away. Guys, listen, I, I know what it's like to feel like, man, making promises and they're not kept and it hurts. And so to ask you to put your trust in something and God's plan and his promises is a big ask. But God also asked the people of Israel to trust in his promises. And uh, at the time that Mary is hearing this from this angel, there's a lot of promises that God has not kept yet. I want to tell you about a few promises that God has made. God promised the people of Israel that through Israel, God was going to bless the whole world. Mary's living in this town under Roman rule, not really blessing the whole world. That didn't happen. Where's that at? That God would one day send them a suffering servant who would die on a tree to set them free from their sins. They hadn't seen that yet. Where's that promise? They, there's a promise in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and deliver them from their enemies. Uh, their number one enemy, Rome, was persecuting them and keeping their thumbs smashed down on Israel, eventually would destroy their temple. That the Messiah would sit on David's throne to rule forever over the people of Israel. Check this out. Mary is marrying a guy named Joseph from the line of David. She's literally going to be in the same house with a man who is a just physical image that God has not kept his promise. This guy's a carpenter. He's more likely to build a throne than to ever sit on one. So she's going to be living with a man saying, God has not kept his promises. Nobody's sitting on David's throne, and that throne is long gone. God's not keeping his promises. But then what this angel says 
and verse 31 is a game changer. God keeps his promises. 31 says this. It's on the screen. And behold, the angel says, you will conceive and in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That is every one of the prophecies in one human being. Right there. Listen, I want to show you these images that are in here. Number one, Jesus' name It's Jesus, but in Hebrew, it's Yeshua. Yeshua is where we also get the name Joshua. Joshua was the leader of the people of Israel who led them out of the wilderness uh, into the promised land. Jesus carries the name of a leader who's going to set people free and take them to where God's promised them to go. Number two, it says he's going to sit on the throne of David. Second Samuel chapter 7, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, says that God was going to place a descendant of David on the throne. He was going to be eternal king, eternal throne, uh, and he's going to reign forever. And he's saying, and this child's going to do just that. And lastly, it says he's going to be the leader of the house of Jacob. Jacob is where we get Israel. When we sing about Israel, set Israel free, Israel is Jacob. And he has the 12 sons that make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's saying that Jesus is going to be the leader of Israel. Jacob's not just the father of the 12 tribes. He's also the grandson of Abraham. Abraham, God made a promise to you, said, Abraham, through one of your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. So this angel just answered every single one of the promises they've been hoping in. Now, I want you to just pause and just think for a second. Imagine being this teenage girl. You're under Roman captivity. You're slaves. And your people are hoping. Some of them don't. They doubt. They're like, I don't know if God's ever going to do it. And suddenly he comes to you of all people. Like, why didn't he come to a king or like a president or Giselle? I don't know. He comes to this little teenage girl and he says, hey, all the hopes and the promises of all the world are going to be inside of your womb. Like, being pregnant is already stressful, isn't it? Ladies, you've been pregnant? Man, I was so stressed by my wife's stress. It's stressful. But then you're carrying the hope of the world inside of you. And so look at the way that she responds. I think that all of us can relate to this. Mary says in verse 34, she says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Great question. See, she's being told that she's going to carry the Savior, carry the promised one, carry the promised fulfiller. But she's also carrying questions. And I think some of you are also carrying questions. You're carrying some doubts about whether or not God can really do what he says he's going to do. Right? Maybe you weren't raised in the same tradition. You weren't raised in Christianity. And you were told a different way the world works and the different way the world came about. And so for you, this is just, it doesn't fit in your typical tradition. And you don't know what to think about it. Or maybe this doesn't make any sense to you. Like, it doesn't compute. You're trying to add up the math, and it does, this whole God thing doesn't make sense. And you can't even tell, what's the difference between this Christianity and the rest of religions? Why would I believe in this folklore over something else? Or maybe some of you are carrying some questions because of experiences you've had. Maybe, like me, you've been a part of churches where you came in, and it looked a lot less like Christ and a lot more like something else. And you were hurt in the process. You tried it, you tested it out, it didn't seem to come true, you're not sure that you want to try it out again. 
Or maybe you've just, man, you've done some, you've done some things and you feel like God would never want to be near you. That he wouldn't want to be close to you. Listen, every one of you, if you were honest, you're carrying some kind of burden, some kind of question, some kind of doubt, and you're just like Mary, and it's causing you to say, how can this really even be true? Isn't this just a Christmas story? This isn't history. I can't believe it. I want to tell you, as an ambassador of Christ, that in this room are people who have put their faith in Jesus and believed, and we found that God's plan is not just personal. It's not just uh, uh, it's not just um, personal. It's not just, uh, I forgot what my second point is. You know what it is? Promise. There we go. Teamwork. It's not just promised. We found that it's possible. God's plan is possible. Absolutely possible. You know, in statistics, they say, uh, you know, they do, when they do statistic probabilities, there's a certain point where a probability becomes an impossibility. Okay? It becomes an impossibility. There was a mathematician and an astrologer uh, astronomy professor down in uh, Pasadena, California, at Pasadena College, who wanted to run a stat, or he wanted to see what is the probability that any one man, since the prophets to today, could fulfill eight of the 40 plus pro- uh, prophecies about the Messiah. He wanted to see what's the probability. And so he ran the stat, him and 600 other college students, they got together and they ran the most conservative stats they could run to find out what's the probability. Is this even possible that somebody could actually fulfill, one person fulfill eight of the 40 plus prophecies? You know what they found? That there is a chance. It's one in 10 to the 17th power. One in 10 to the 17th power. What does that mean? Well, he knew that a lot of people wouldn't understand 10 to the 17th power, Okay. Um, so he wrote in an article, he says, basically like this, imagine if I were to take a hat, okay, and I were to take uh, 10 pieces or 10 tickets and I marked one of them and I put it in there, stirred it up and you reached in and you try to grab one, what's your chances of getting the right one? It's one in what? 10. It's one in 10. One in 10 to the 17th power would be like taking a silver dollar. If you took one in 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and you laid them over the face of Texas, it would be two feet deep. Then if you took that, one of those silver dollars, you marked it, maybe you painted it red, you put it back out there in the state of Texas, you shuffled the whole thing, then you took a man, you blindfolded him, you said, walk out there, you can go as far as you want, but go down there and I want you to reach down, I want you to grab one, hold it up and say, this is the one. That's the probability of fulfilling eight of the 40 plus prophecies about Jesus, about the Messiah, of one guy doing it. And he says, that's not a probability. That's an impossibility unless somebody above who's outside of time, outside of history is involved in it. And you go, yeah, well, that's, isn't that from the Bible? Aren't those all those prophecies from the Bible? How can we even trust that the Bible is true? Hey, it's a good question, right? How can we trust it? Well, let me tell you a few things about the Bible. You want to know if it's possible? Let me tell you about the Bible. The Bible is, was written between 15, in a 1,500-year period. It's a lot of years. It's written by 40 plus authors in three different languages on three different continents, and yet it tells one unified story without contradiction. I, listen, you can't even get your family to agree on what you're going to eat for dinner. It tells one unified story without contradiction. Here's the thing. You go, oh, it's got contradictions. Where'd you find that? On Google? Have you read it? I've read it multiple times. No contradiction. Let's add to this. There has never been a single archaeological discovery that's ever 
refuted anything in the Bible, ever, once. Even in my lifetime, there's been two major ones, and both of them affirmed things that the Bible already said. Not to mention that we have 5,700 New Testament manuscripts. Did you know that? 5,700 New Testament manuscripts. You're like, oh, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Let me tell you what your colleges teach you about. They teach you about Plato, Aristotle, and Homer, right? Check out how many we have of, era, or of Plato. We have seven known manuscripts of Plato. Of the New Testament manuscripts, we have them dating back to AD 125. That's in the lifespan of eyewitnesses. With Plato's writings, 1,200 to 1,300 years after the original. And we only have seven of them. We have 643 known manuscripts of Homer's writings, and the earliest copy being 500 years after the original. In Aristotle's, we only have 49 known manuscripts from the earliest copy being at 1,500 years after the original. Let me ask you a question. You put so much hope and trust in what your colleges are teaching you, but it looks like all of his, and they're telling us that Plato and Aristotle shaped the West. They shaped the thinking of the West. Apparently not, because the West didn't even feel like writing their stuff down. We have 5,700 manuscripts who tell a unified story about Jesus. The most historically verified book in history. You go, well, hold on a second. Well, I've heard that the, these writers, these scribes, as they were passing it down, they would change some things and to make it better and better and better. Okay, and then what they did is they would change a few things to make it line up with Jesus. Now listen, line up with, you get these prophecies to line up with his life. Now, a lot of people believed that prior to 1947. Prior to 1947, so many people were like, that's the argument. So what happened in 1947? Well, in 1947, there was a shepherd who was taking care of some sheep and doing his thing, but he was going into a cave, and he accidentally came across something that is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. You're like, this is Christmas. Why am I hearing about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Because it's so important that we understand uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls for tonight. Because in the Dead Sea Scrolls was the scroll of Isaiah. And in the scroll of Isaiah... Just one book in this scroll is 18 prophecies about Jesus. Let me just read 10 of them to you. 10. Listen to what it says. Number one, we'll be born of a virgin. Number two, we'll be heir to the throne of David in the Davidic covenant. Number three, he will have his way prepared by another. That's John the Baptist. He will be spat on and struck. You're like, oh, everybody's been spat on and struck. Number five, we'll be disfigured by suffering. Number six, we'll be widely rejected. Number seven, we'll make blood atonement. We'll die with transgressors. He had two on either side of him. We'll heal the blind, lame, deaf, diseased, brokenhearted, and raise the dead. And you're like, well, so the writers say, but yeah, 5,700 manuscripts. They knew that he did it. There's no doubt he actually did it. They just didn't know how he did it. He actually did it. That's just 10. Now, why does this matter? Why am I telling you this? Because the scroll of Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls, secular and religious scholars all agree using carbon dating, multiple forms of dating, that that scroll has to date between 400 and 100 BC. You know what BC stands for? Before Christ. In other words, 18 prophecies about the life of Jesus, 18, eight of them, it's like taking silver dollars, placing them all over the state of Texas, two feet deep, and you finding one, 18, and he fulfilled all of them. That's why it matters, and it came before Jesus ever existed. Now, we could just ignore all this. Just call it an impossibility, whatever, I don't know what's true. Let's just forget the fact, 
but our colleges don't want to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. We're just going to call this Christmas story. It's just a, just a fantasy, just another ring around the corner. It's the next thing. But here's the thing. Uh, one thing that we can't ignore is that every single one of you has this deep longing in your chest that hopes that this is true, that hopes there really is meaning to life. I felt it. Laying on a futon in South Carolina, contemplating taking my own life. I felt like there was no meaning in life and I was ready to be done. And you feel it. You hope this is true, that there's a God who loves you and who's willing to do the impossible, who wants to be personally involved with you, who has promises for you and promises that he will save you, redeem you, and, and make much of you that you can't make of yourself. Now, there's a problem that the rest of this world has stories to tell. And they're saying there's lots of ways that we can get to heaven, right? And like getting to heaven, this is confusing. There's a lot of people who say that getting to heaven is like ascending a mountain. And there's a lot of ways to get to the top of a mountain, right? There's Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, right? Fitness, self-actualization, you name it. There's a lot of ways to get there. And you name the top of the mountain wherever you want to name it. You can name it heaven. You can name it enlightenment. You can name it um, <clears throat> self-actualization, whatever you want. Name it whatever you want. <clears throat> you just got to work hard to get to the top of the mountain. A few years ago, I got to run over the Bighorns in a race that's called the Bighorn Marathon. And I got to run an ultra marathon. Now, truth be told, I didn't train much for it. Okay? And by I didn't train much for it, I'm just not a runner and I hate running. I just want to see if I could do it. And so a few of my friends and my wife were at the finish line. Start this race, run 32 miles, and guess what? I finished that race. Okay? And, uh, but when I crossed the finish line, none of my friends were there. You know why my friends weren't there? Because they didn't think I was actually going to finish it. Okay? And so I'm like wandering around. Eventually I collapsed under a tree and just laid there, all right, because I was going to die. And uh, I, you know, I ate some food, rejuvenated my hopes, stood back up, took off, and I started walking around. There's only 200 people there. How could I not find them? And finally, Carson, one of my best friends, comes walking up and he sees me. I lay eyes on him and he goes, you did it? He, like, like, like it was a question, like, like there was any doubting. And so I was like, yeah, I did it. And so he walks me over, and then Annika, his wife, she goes, you actually did it? I was like, yeah, I actually did it. I ran that thing, man, and walked at the same time. Here's the thing. A lot of you guys are hoping that you're going you're to be able to run this race, and you're going to come to the end of your life, and you're going to arrive at this thing called heaven, and the people are going to go, hey, you actually did it. And that's what the religions of the world want to tell you. Work hard, be a generally good guy, do a few things, pay your taxes, and you'll arrive in heaven. I want to tell you right now, that may be what the rest of the religions are saying. And that's what they say. It's a works-based thing. But do not put Jesus in that camp. You know what Jesus says? Jesus is an outlier. Our Bible tells us that actually we cannot make it to the top of the mountain. The book called Romans in chapter 3 it says this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. A few verses later it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single time you think that you're gonna make this summit, it's a false summit and you realize there's far more to go. And you know it, you feel it in your gut. Tom Brady's living it and he's got more than you. I know you feel it. You can't get there. So you know what the Bible says? What does God do? He knows we can't make it. So in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible tells us that Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count it as something to be achieved, something that you can, you can sum it. You cannot make it to the top. So he, verse seven, <clears throat> he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This is why Christmas matters. Christianity is telling you this. Listen, friend. You cannot make it to the top of the mountain. And God is so in love with you, and he's so wise that he knows you can't, so he decided to come down from the mountain to you, to dwell among us. That's why this historically accurate event of Jesus, who is a baby, putting on human flesh, matters. Because Jesus is going to raise up to do something you can't do, and it says it here in Philippians. And being found in human form, he did bad things to good people. No. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The only reason why Christmas matters is because of Easter. God stepped down so he could be just like you, whether you're a teenage girl, a contractor, you work for the government, you work for the city, you're a teacher, you're a kid. It doesn't matter who you are. He came for you. And he wants to have a personal relationship with you. And he promised that he would. And you may feel like it's impossible. And I'm just selling you another hoax, another fantasy, another fairy tale. But I'm telling you that me and my friends in this room would tell you it's possible. There's a story that we gave you. And inside of that story is an impossible story what God can do with a marriage when an individual is just gripped with sin. And that's one of hundreds, if not thousands of stories of people in this community who believe in Jesus. And we've seen what God can do to transform our life. We don't ascend the mountain. We don't assume that we're great people and we expect you to come in and go, look at all these people who are going to make it to the top of the mountain. They're good guys. No, we're, we are only here because we're admitting we're not good guys. We're sinners. But we're not scared anymore, so we write it down. We put it in a piece of paper so you can read it to see you're just like us. We're alcoholics and we're porn addicts and, and we struggle with fear, failure, and anxiety and we, we've got all these hopes and dreams and they keep failing us and all these things. We're just like you. But Jesus is not like us. We're not perfect people. But we have a perfect God with a perfect plan. And that perfect plan is to set, save us and redeem us. Listen, you are putting your hope in something today. You got some, you got some kind of hopes for 2022, right? That your house is going to continue increase in price, Right? Okay, you're hoping that some president in this world is going to be taken out or something like that. You're, you've got all these hopes. Some of you, listen, you really do. You're, you're hoping that your kids are somehow your retirement plan. You're hoping that they're going to be successful. You're hoping that you're going to get married this year. You're hoping for all these things, and you're thinking, if I can just get those, I'll be okay. Tom Brady doesn't even know Jesus, and he's saying, God, there's got to be something more than this. You're putting your hope in something. And I'm telling you right now, it's, it's a prince on a white horse. It's a fairy tale. There's no difference between you and Tangled. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that Jesus, he's not a prince on a white horse, but he is a king. And that there is another prophecy. I just told you that he fulfilled 40 prophecies. It's impossible. There's another prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's in Revelation 19, and it says that there's a king coming, and the king is coming on a white horse. I want to read it to you, and I want you to listen, because this is so important that you understand this, because God will keep this promise. Verse 11 of chapter 19, Revelation says, then I saw heaven opened. 
And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This king right here is not the king that I'm gonna have to see, but is a king that some of you will. This is a conquering king. This is the king who's coming to bring the wrath of God against every single human being who just said, you know what? I don't trust you. I don't believe you're true. I'm not gonna follow you. You are not king of my life. I am king of my life. He's going to conquer. And listen to me, he has every right to. Because he died for you. He offered you this chance. He did the statistically impossible thing so that you might be free, whether you're a teenage girl or a carpenter. doesn't matter who you are. And he wants to have a personal relationship with you. So not only does he have permission to bring wrath and judgment, which I deserved, which you deserve, but he also has the right, because of what he did on the cross, to extend to you peace and forgiveness and grace and a personal relationship and hope everlasting. He has the right to do it because he is king. And he deserves that right. Fifteen years ago, I was a teenager like Mary, and I was hopeless, I was lost, I was tired of putting my hope in promises that men were making. I was suicidal and broken and full of sin and addicted to to drugs and alcohol, and I was just on my own. And somebody told me about this story, and I didn't come to Jesus because I heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls or some kind of statistics or anything like that. I came to Jesus because I was hopeless, and I knew what Tom Brady knew. Nothing was giving me what I was hoping for. And so a man invited me into a relationship with Christ. And he asked me, do you want to believe? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord? And I said, yes. He said, then I want you to pray with me. And he invited me in a room like this to come down and to pray with him. And 15 years ago, I began a relationship with Jesus and it changed absolutely everything about my life. You can call me a fool and say I believe in a fantasy. I tell you right now, it's changed everything. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You don't do anything, you believe. It's with a heart that we believe and are justified. It's with our mouth that we confess and we're saved. All you have to do is profess and believe in Jesus. And you're saved, that's it. And so I want to be a friend to you like I had a friend 15 years ago. If you're like me and you're feeling that longing, that heart, that hole in your heart, saying, I am looking for this. I want to invite you. We're going to sing a song called All Hail King Jesus. And I'm going to sing it with all my heart because Jesus is my king. And if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, this personal, promised, possible God, and you want to step into his plan, I want to invite you to come and pray with me. I'm going to be down here in the front with a few of my best friends. 
And we would love to talk to you about what it means to begin relationship with Jesus. Come and pray with us. Listen to me. You are already thinking about, oh, what are people going to think? I want to tell you this. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, then nobody else's opinions matter anymore. If this is true, then nobody's opinions in this room matter anymore. That's why Tommy's and Valerie's story is in there for you to read. Because your opinion doesn't matter anymore. They want you to know Jesus. So friend, I invite you, when we sing this song, we stand together. If you feel God pulling on your heart, it's because he's personal and he wants to have a relationship. And I want to invite you, come up here and pray with us. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. Come and stand with us and we'll do that. Why don't you guys stand? Let me pray before we sing this song together. Oh, Father, I know exactly what this moment feels like. There are men and women in this room who you've created, who created in your image, who you deeply and desperately love, who are thinking, I need, I need this. I've been looking, I've been searching, I've been hoping, can this be true? Father, I pray right now by your spirit, you would encourage them to come and to pray. I pray they would not fear what man thinks of them. I pray that they would not have any anxiety. But out of a hope that you are the God who loves them, they would step. For my brothers and sisters in this room who are believers, I pray that they would be reminded today that the hope that they placed in you years ago, months ago, days ago, is a secure hope. You will keep your promises. You are with them. And you will do the impossible. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a moment when the lights went out. Death is claimed.
Lord. 